0: reading today is, uh, the scripture for today is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up in him and seated. Uh, sorry, and great. Sorry, I lost my spot. created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. If you have your Bibles,
1: go ahead and open them to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, what Bala read for us. Thanks, Bala. Um, My name is Justin Howard. one of your pastors in So excited to be here this morning with you. Joni and I were out of town last week, and we had that trip planned for a long time before we ever knew that we were going to be coming back here. And so we were initially very excited uh, to be gone, and then last week we were gone, and we were sad. We missed you guys. So we're excited to be back uh, this morning and uh, looking um, at Ephesians again. And so as we continue, just a quick recap of where we've come from. In chapter 1, Paul's given us this great benediction of praise where he has shown us God's plan for redemption. And then last week we looked at Paul's prayer for the church. And this week we continue looking at our own conversion. And so um, as we do want to help us, Uh, be thinking about this text. And um, as we come to our passage this morning, we're reminded that the world has no shortage of problems. Every day we're reminded of all of these problems, whether it's a billboard or an advertisement or a Facebook post or a news article, whatever medium it might be, we're consistently reminded that our world is full of problems. And often when we're reminded of those problems, we're often reminded of proposed solutions for those problems. It's becoming common for to see an advertisement, and here's a problem, and then here's a solution. And if marketers are really good at their job, then they will present the problem in such a way that you feel compelled to buy their solution to the problem. Now, usually these problems are minuscule and inconsequential. And so if we heed their advice or if we reject it, it's usually no big deal. But there are other problems that we're presented with that are bigger and more important. And we have to consider those, uh, the, the solutions for those problems, to be weightier I remember in high school I played football and one summer I hurt my back and I was just taught if you could walk and play then you just tough it out. And so for weeks I just toughed it out and finally I told our trainer, hey, my back is really hurting. He said, well, maybe you need to go to the doctor and get it looked at I thought, "Okay." Went to the doctor and found out that I had a stress fracture in my back and I was going to miss the entire season. And the moment that I got that news, I began to immediately regret that I ever said anything. I began replaying how could the day have gone differently to to miss the appointment. I didn't like the news that the doctor told me and I didn't like his solution of not playing. None of us enjoy getting bad news. And so I say all of that to us this morning because Paul is very clear here. We've got some bad news in front of us and want to guard us from the temptation that we may feel as we look at the bad news to to turn away from it. No one likes that dark closet that we have in our house where we just stuff stuff we don't want to open that door because if we do things might fall out and we might not like them so I just want to guard us this morning and as we look at God's word to not run from our problem because all the problems that we see around us they're really caused by one problem and that's sin and so as we look this morning it's helpful to remember Paul does this so that we'll understand the good news of the gospel because if we don't actually understand the bad news then the good news doesn't make that much sense if we don't actually understand that we're sinners in desperate need of salvation then when we hear about God's grace in Christ it's huh, it's good it's a good addition Paul wants us to run to Christ, and so he does that by helping us see who we are apart from Christ. So that's Paul's purpose, that you would see who you are apart from Christ and who you are in Christ, all the while driving us to cry out in faith to Christ. So if you're taking notes this morning, the outline's pretty simple. It's our problem Our problem explained, our solution, and then our solution explained. And I pray with God's help that we would all be driven to place our faith in Christ alone because it's God's grace alone that saves us. Before we jump in, let me pray and ask for God's help. Father, we thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for your word Lord, that you have not left us in the dark. And Father, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, that you would, by your Spirit, Lord, give us eyes to see, Lord, hearts to believe, and hands and feet that are ready to respond with obedience. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, again, last week we looked at at Paul's prayer for the Ephesians and in verse 19, he says that he wants the Ephesians to know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe, according to the working of God's great might. And so at the end of last week, we looked at what God did in raising Christ up. And this week, Paul's continuing that desire of his that we might know the immeasurable greatness of God's power. And he does that uh, by exposing our sin. We also need to be careful that while Paul is writing to the Ephesians, what he says still applies to us. If you look in verse 3, he says, among whom we all once lived. So what Paul says in these ten verses Is not exclusive to the Ephesians, but it it applies to you and it applies to me. All humanity is swept up in these 10 verses in some capacity. So Paul begins in verse 1 by stating our problem bluntly. He says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Paul says that we were dead. Now, he doesn't mean that we were physically dead. He's not talking to people like you that are alive and breathing and saying you're dead when you're alive and breathing. He's saying you're spiritually dead. And to be spiritually dead is analogous to being physically dead in that you are cut off from God. You are cut off from life. And spiritually we have no ability to go forward towards God. Paul says in Romans 8, And for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Spiritual death is to be disabled from having fellowship with God. And this death is the result of sin and trespass. So to help us understand what spiritual death is, it can be helpful to think about spiritual life and what is spiritual life. We remember Adam and Eve in the garden. God created them. They had fellowship with one another, but more importantly, they had fellowship with God. Genesis 3.8 tells us that God walked in the garden with them. They walked with God. They talked with God. God gave them His law in the garden. They had spiritual life. They were in harmony with God. And yet, we know that when they ate the fruit that God told them not to eat, they, they died, just like God said. Now, they didn't immediately die physically, but they did immediately die spiritually. And to prove that point, God banished them from the garden. They no longer had fellowship with God. Sin and death had entered the picture. Spiritual death was now the reality that marked their world and the world after them. You see, the problem of spiritual death is far more pervasive and it is far more troubling than physical death. Right now we live in a health-crazed society. And this was true before COVID in the pandemic. And the assumption behind the, the health culture is that physical vitality will equal spiritual vitality. And there's some truth that physical Activity can help emotional well being, but, but that assumption is, is fundamentally false because, as Paul has showed us here, physical vitality does not equal spiritual vitality. You can be alive, you can be physically fit, and you can be spiritually dead all at the same time. And this is our problem we are dead in our sins. It's almost as if Paul's anticipating us to push back against that and say, but Paul, he he explains further in verses 2 and 3. And his language is clear, it's convincing, and it's condemning. And so he explains our problem in three ways. He says that we walked according to the course of this world. Second, that we lived with a corrupted flesh, body, and mind. And then third, that we are ultimately, by nature, condemned. So first, we follow the course of this world. Walking is an important theme in the book of Ephesians. We'll see it especially in the second half of the book. For example, in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, "'I, therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called.'" Chapter 5, verse 15, he says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but wise. Walking is an important theme for Paul that that characterizes the, the pattern and course of your life, the trajectory of your life. And yet, Paul says here that you were walking according to the course of this world. Your life was characterized by the course of this world. In the course of this world, it's the same word in verse 7 where it says in the coming age, age and the course of this world. It's the the same word. And so for, for Paul, this age or the course of this world is one that's characterized by rebellion against God. John Stott helpfully explains Paul's meaning here when he says... That the course of this world expresses a whole social value system which is alien to God. It permeates, indeed dominates, non-Christian society and holds people in captivity. The entire course of this life, this age, is held captive to sin. Man in this age is in open rebellion to God. And Paul says that we walked according to this the course of this world. And he says, the ruler of this age is Satan. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He's the one that's organizing the details here in this world wide rebellion. And Paul says that we are sons of disobedience. And Paul's not just thinking about our physical acts of disobedience, our, our actual stealing something that doesn't belong to us. He, he also has in view here unbelief. The two greatest commandments, to, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love others. Paul has those in mind here. It's not just that we have done bad things. It's that we, we have in our minds rejected God. And that's the first thing that he says, explains our problem. The second is that we have a corrupted flesh, body, and mind. Our problem is all-encompassing. Flesh, body, mind. This is what some theologians call total depravity. They say it's total because it encompasses our total person. Both flesh, body, mind. Mind. That does not mean that humans are always as bad as they could be. It's not what Paul's saying, and that's not what theologians mean when they use that language. They're merely saying that the totality of our being is corrupted by sin. And so when we follow the course of this world, we do so both with our minds and with our bodies. This is why James in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. So our minds are corrupted by the fall, and we are lured and enticed to sin. And when our minds have conceived of it, then our bodies carry it out. You see how encompassing our problem is. And you see how this flies in the face of our culture today. Our culture today is telling us that we're pretty good. Our desires are pretty good. More than that, our desires are so good that they ought to be acted upon. They ought to be indulged in. Your desires are actually self defining in today's thought. You are what you desire. Further, anyone or anything that would seek to restrict that is oppressive and evil. That's not what Paul says. Paul is clear our desires are not neutral. He says we lived in the passions of our flesh and carried out the desires of the body and the mind. And so apart from Christ, this is true of you, this would be true of me. We would, with both our minds and our bodies, submit to the prince of the power of the air and follow the course of this world. And finally, Paul says that we are condemned in our rebellion. He says, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By nature, Paul means that we inherited this condition. We were born with it. When Adam sinned, he passed on his sin and guilt to us. And this is what Paul says succinctly here in Ephesians, but in Romans chapter 5, he argues it at great length. For example, Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so when we sin, when we follow the course of this world, we confirm that we were by nature children of wrath. And God's wrath is His holy disposition towards sin. God's wrath is different than our wrath. When we get angry and we act out, that is almost always a mixture of of good and bad reasons. There may be some times when we experience a righteous indignation, but I would say in general, our anger, our wrath, is a mixture of good and, and sinful motivation. That is not God's wrath. God's wrath, his justice is connected to his character, to his person. God's wrath is not capricious or fickle. It's not here today, gone tomorrow, and back again. The next. It's part of his character, and his character is unchanging. That's why Psalm 92:7 says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. It's unshakable because it's part of his character. And as we participate in the course of this world, God's wrath is set against us. And this is why the psalmist can cry, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Brothers and sisters, this is our problem. This is your neighbor's problem. This is your family's problem. This is the world's problem. And this problem is far more severe than we possibly have imagined. We are in open rebellion against a holy God. That does not end well for us. This is the bad news. This is our problem. But God... Oh, how great are those words. But God. Our problem was so grave that if it weren't for these two words, we would be lost. But God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God is rich in mercy. We saw this in chapter 1, and we see it again here today. God is rich in mercy. This is something that runs deep throughout the Bible. You may remember in the Old Testament, Moses, who helped lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And Moses asked God, if he could see God's glory. And God told Moses that no man could see God's glory and live. Instead, God told Moses that He would put put Moses in the cleft of a rock and that he would pass by Moses and Moses would catch a glimpse of his back. And so, Exodus 34, verse 6-7 through says, "...the Lord passed before him, before Moses." and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. God is rich in mercy. He abounds in steadfast love. And it's because of God loved that He saved us. And this is our solution to our problem, is God. But God... And in verse 5, just in case we've forgotten, Paul reminds us that, that He did this while we were dead. And dead people don't help themselves. And so Paul wants us to see that it, it's God who came and rescued us. God didn't just toss us a life raft and say, pick it up. No, God jumped in the water, picked us up out of the water and put us on the boat with him. Brothers and sisters, if God had not made us alive, then we would still be dead. But thanks be to God for his rich mercy and his great love with which he loved us. And again, Paul wants us to feel the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us. And so he's given us two proofs. The first is Jesus' resurrection, and the second is your own conversion. And both are miraculous. If you are in Christ, then God has made your dead heart alive. This is the new life that Jesus talked about in John 3 with Nicodemus when he says you must be born again. We must be made alive. Sometimes it's called regeneration. We must be born again. By grace you have been saved. And this is really Paul's point in these 10 verses is by grace you have been saved. And again, grace is a concept we don't understand if those first three verses aren't true. And so that's why He spent His time there. But now, with that in place, He tells us, by grace you have been saved. And this is His point. That God's grace is God's unmerited favor on us and undeserving people. That may sound a little redundant. And that's mostly intentional grace is unmerited, then it follows that it's given to an undeserving people. Merit is something that you deserve. You go to work. You do your job. You get a check at the end of the week because you earned it. That's not grace. That's reward. So let me caution us this morning as we live in the South We go to church regularly. We hear about grace week after week. There can be a danger. Because when we hear the word grace, we can say, oh yeah, I know what that means. Oh yeah, I remember I learned that when I was young. We can mentally acknowledge the definition of grace without actually believing that. And so subtly, we can begin to think of grace and reward as Synonyms. Paul's point is that God's grace here is—it's His gift, and we we haven't earned it. We don't deserve it, but God gives it. And so our problem is spiritual death. Our solution is spiritual life, and God gives that to us by His grace. And so, in verses six through ten, Paul then explains our solution further. And so he says that our new lives they consist of being raised up with Christ and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. The the benefit of our salvation is union with Christ. And what that means is what's true of Christ is true of you. We have been united to Christ. And so just as Christ was raised from the dead, God raises us from the dead. And just as Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places, so we are seated with Christ. Paul says in Romans 6, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What's true of Christ is true of us. Just as Christ has died, so we have died to sin. And so salvation is not merely, I'm not going to hell one day. That's true. And we affirm that. We rejoice in that. Salvation is is positive and negative. We're not going to hell. God has delivered us from the consequences of our sin. But God has also brought us to Himself. He has united us with His Son. This is the great joy of our salvation is that we now know God. We love God. We we walk with Him. And one day we will do so without the hindrance of sin. And Paul says that, that all of this is so that we might display the great kindness and glory of God both now and, and in the age to come. We are, if you will, God's walking billboards that testify to His grace and His mercy. And so as we think about our lives, we want to live in such a way that people see us and they, they're pointed to God and His glory. This is why we, we want to be different, not for different sake, but so that we can point people to our great God and tell people, look what our God has done in my life, and He can do that in your life. That's part of the reason why we'll spend so much time in the second half of the book looking at our lives and how we live, because it's important. And then in verses 8 and 9, Paul tells us, how we're saved. He says, for by grace you have been saved. Again, Paul is presenting us with this theme. It is God's grace that has rescued us. A famous verse, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son and whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. God's grace sent Christ into the world, and God's grace makes us alive. And Paul says it's by grace through faith. So God's grace makes us spiritually alive. And then we cry out to God in faith. Faith is the instrument whereby we receive God's grace in Christ. Hebrews 11.1 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is trust in God and His Word. Faith is not a blind leap into darkness. It is assurance for things hoped for. It's taking God at His Word. And faith is not merely an intellectual exercise. We must believe certain things about the Gospel but that is not just a, a mental exercise. And so the scary thing is that we could sit here this morning and mentally affirm everything that Paul has said in this passage without ever actually having faith. That's possible. Faith is not just mentally assenting to certain truths. Faith is a wholehearted trust of God in His Word. It doesn't just merely say that Christ died for sinners. That's true, and we must believe that. But we must go further and say that Christ died for me. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live I live in the, fle- uh, the night life. I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I love the way Stuart Townsend in his song "How Deep the Father's Love for Us." I love how he expresses it. Listen to these lyrics. He says, "Behold the man upon a cross. My sin upon His shoulders." Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. This is faith. Jesus died for my sins. And this is the gift of God. That's not your own doing. The word this In the original language, is neutral. If you don't know Greek, that's okay. I don't either. I read a bunch of really good commentaries that help explain it. What that means is that Paul is not just isolating faith here. Paul is speaking about both both grace and faith. In short, what that means, Paul is saying, from start to finish, your salvation is God's gift. From beginning to end, it's God's gift. And then in verse 9, Paul puts the final nail in the coffin. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And works is not simply law-keeping here. Works can be anything that you or I would put our trust in to make us right before God. And our hearts are real clever. We can make a work out of just about anything good. It can be money. It can be our job. It can be our children. It can be serving in the church or our attendance in the church. It can be anything that we are looking to and trusting in more than Christ. So I ask you this morning, is there something in your life that you're trusting in more than Christ? If so... Repent and trust Christ for forgiveness. So Paul says finally that we are a new creation. He says a similar point in Second Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is what Paul's saying. He says, "For we are." his workmanship created in Christ Jesus God has created us afresh he's given us a new heart and he's done that so that we will actually long to submit in obedience to God that we will walk in the good works that God has planned for us and so Paul has brought us full circle here hasn't he we started by walking in darkness and now he ends by telling us where to walk in good works. Walking. We're either walking according to this world or we're either walking in the good works that God has for us. And so as we end this morning, let me just offer a couple of final thoughts. Remember our problem. Our problem is first and foremost is our sin is against God. But then remember our solution. Yeah. Our God has made us alive in Christ. And both our problem and our solution are, are far greater than we have ever imagined. As the saying goes, you are far more sinful than you realize, but you are far more loved than you could ever imagine. And so if you're here this morning and you have not placed your faith in Christ and heed this warning what Paul says in the first three verses would still true of you if you are not in Christ and you are under God's wrath but today you could receive God's gift of salvation you could cry out to Christ to save you. And He is faithful. He will do that. If you want to talk more about that, find me after or find the person you came with. For those of us that have trusted Christ, they're not offer you a similar exhortation. Put your faith in Christ. Maybe better, continue putting your faith in Christ alone. Maybe you picked up on The grammar in our passage. Now, I'm not much of a grammarian, but it is important. So let's go back and and observe some of the grammar in our passage. You'll notice it's almost all in the past tense. He says in verse 1, You were dead. In verse 2, He says, In which you once walked. He says in verse 3, whom we all once lived. And then verse 5, made us alive. And then verse 6, raised us up and then seated us with Him. And then verse 8, He says, for by grace you have been saved. God's grace has saved you. And so remember that this week. When the enemy comes and when he seeks to assail you, remember that it is finished. Yes, we still wrestle. Yes, we still battle. But our victory is certain, and we can have confidence this week. A battle against sin and death has already been won. And that's why Paul puts it all in the past tense for us, so that we might understand what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us. We no longer serve sin. We no longer serve Satan. I said, we submit ourselves to God. We walk in the good works that He's prepared for us. So this week, what are the good works that God has planned for you? Ask God to give you an opportunity this week to walk in a good work. Maybe it's a, a neighbor who you've had some interactions with, but... Maybe it's time to get to know them better. Maybe it's a coworker that you know that there's something going on in their life and, and you can offer a word of encouragement. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe God has a good work for you to do for your spouse. Or maybe it's, a, it's another church member that God would have you seek out and serve. Whatever it is, ask God to make it clear to you because he says that he has prepared good works for us. And so, church, may we be a people marked by grace. May we seek those opportunities that God has put before us. And may we walk in light of the gospel. So we'll transition now to our time of communion. And we, have, we do this every week. And we do this so that we can remember the grace that God has poured out to us. You see, the only way that we could be transferred from the first three verses to, to the last six verses is if Christ came and suffered in our place. And so as we, you take the bread, remember that, that Christ's body was broken for you. And as you take the juice, remember that Christ shed His blood for you so that you might be brought in to God's family. So if you're here this morning and you are not trusting in Christ, then I would ask you to just participate in a different way. Just remain seated and think on the things that you've heard this morning. If you are in Christ you're a member here or you're a member at another church, then the table's open for you. You can walk out those doors, get the elements, come back in and take them in your own time. And let us remember it's God's grace that saves us. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for your grace, Lord. Father, we thank You that while we were dead in our sins, Lord, You made us alive. And Father, we do pray for those that may be here this morning or our family or our co-workers, Lord, that, that do not know You. Father, we pray that You would make them alive. Father, would You give us an opportunity this week, Father, to share the good news of the gospel. And Father, we do pray that you would help us as we seek to walk in the good works that you have for us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.